Okay. Maybe not. Ooh, someone's playing Game of Thrones. Hello, Game of Thrones. All right, uh, it is uh, a couple minutes after. I apologize. I was uh, trying to troubleshoot the audio recording. I think I have it working, so it should be good. Uh, Royce is going to help us distribute books for you tonight. Uh, he volunteered. So he's going to dump them out on the table and do all that. I'm James Orr. While uh, Royce is handing out books, uh, people can have one or two copies if they prefer to give one to someone else. So I think I have enough for everybody. Uh, that should be good. So just ask people if they want one. or You guys can take either one or two. If you have a really compelling reason to take three, let me know. I will pretend I'll listen and go ahead and take three. Um, but go ahead and uh, please pass them out if you're going to do that. Uh, how to acquire a multi-million dollar investment portfolio while earning just $5,000 per month is a brand new class, brand new topic. And Tammy also is going to do a drawing for um, a course. So um, I'll give you the backstory behind this quick. So recently, I don't remember what it was, a few months ago, Tammy told me I needed to start clearing off our bookshelf of all the uh, like bulky materials on there because our books are getting like two or three deep. And so she actually um, is allowing me to get rid of some real estate courses that I feel like I'm not going to reference anymore. So this particular real estate course um, was a course um, that is all about doing marketing, uh, sending out postcards and direct mail and things of that nature in order to find motivated sellers. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to find out how many people in the room that are participating. If you would raise your hand if you are interested in being part of the drawing, I will go ahead and count and then um, we will have Allison pick a number and we will go, go sort of think. What the? It's a real estate course. It's a course. Uh, it's got CDs and DVDs and a whole binder with uh, direct mail marketing materials. So if you're interested in doing off-market, finding deals off MLS, please raise your hands and I will get a count. Just one person? Just one person? Is that right? Raise your hand so I want to make sure. Just one person, is that correct? Before I say she gets it, make sure you tell me. If you're going to be upset. Oh, she's late. That's, a, that's his problem. <laughs> that's how I roll. All right, so one person. Good news, Caroline, you got it. Right. So you got that course. Thank you very much. Woo, you're very welcome. Uh, if I see that for sale on eBay for $1,000, which is what I think I bought for, uh, I'm going to be very upset with you. you. You're very welcome. And remember to give good reviews. What's that? You're suddenly interested. All right. Uh, so my clicker is not working very well tonight. Um, there we go. Guess it works. So upcoming classes. So um, tonight we're doing basically we're going over this book, how to acquire multi-million. I'm going to borrow one of your books back. How to acquire a multi-million dollar investment portfolio. We're earning just five thousand dollars a month. Then next week. We have Mary coming in. Mary is doing uh, basically Nomad, um, but she, when I gave her a copy of the book, she said to me, $5,000 a month, who, does, who needs to earn $5,000 a month? You could do this on much less. So if you want to hear about how Mary basically went from zero to a million dollars in investment real estate, it is really hard to get a client to voluntarily come up in front of the room and answer questions about their own personal finances, uh, you know, their, their kind of holdings and stuff like that. And so. Uh, we've had to bribe Mary. She doesn't know she's being bribed, but we had to bribe Mary to come and uh, come and, and share like her story and answer questions. And so that will be next week. It is going to be amazing. So we'll basically have Mary come in, 
ask her all sorts of questions. You guys will be able to ask questions about how she did it. And she's done it in the last few years in this marketplace. Are you guys, are you going to separate you guys? Well, I was saying I don't. Oh, you need a microphone. You don't want the microphone, I guess. Okay. So Mary's coming in next week. Uh, that'll be that one. And then apparently Brian is teaching bookkeeping and accounting for real estate investors. Uh, that will be on June 6th. Every time we have this class, I'm always surprised that it's so popular. Um, I actually think that this is like one of the more drier classes. But it actually is really good. It's good stuff. And so Brian will be teaching that class, usually pretty full house. Then Brian's going to teach deal analysis 301, both thy family. And he's not here to tell you about that, so I will tell you for him, it is going to be amazing. And then after that, this class, I'm not sure if I'm going to be doing this class or not. Basically, I had it on the calendar, and I don't know what I was thinking I was going to teach that night. Uh, but apparently, the name of the class is Real Estate Investing Portfolio Analysis. Maybe I will do some analyzing of real estate portfolios. I'm really not sure what I'm teaching that night, but it's scheduled for June 20th. I've yet to write it. Um, it's going to be amazing, though. I can tell you that for sure. And then after that, we're doing a brand new class topic that I just made up so that I could put it on the calendar for this class tonight. The two best investing strategies for our market right now. So in case you guys aren't aware, our market right now is really hot, very low inventory, very high demand uh, for retail buyers. Interest rates are on the rise. I think um, I, I got a quote over the, week, over the weekend from um, an investor, for an investor, and the interest rate was 5.625 for an interest rate for investment property. So uh, cash flow is going down, uh, prices are going up, interest rates are going up, rents are going up, but not quite as fast as prices and such like that. So um, it's harder and harder to make deals work in our marketplace. So there are two strategies right now that are working in our marketplace, and I will share with you what those two strategies are. They're two very different investing strategies, and I will go over those in detail on Wednesday, June 27th. I will not tell you the two strategies tonight. Why don't you come to class? You can find out what they are. And based on how our technology has been working last week, I tried to record the class, but we had a problem with technology. And when you could see me trying, if you guys were here early, uh, technology was not cooperating earlier tonight. So we'll see if tonight gets recorded. So I've been trying to record them putting on podcast. Might not make it. So I would totally attend live if you can. Um, and then we can go from there. Any questions on upcoming classes? Where's my bench? my stool in the closet? Because I feel more like story mode when I can sit. <laughs> Are they in there? All right, while Tammy looks for my bench, we'll move on. And I might have to manually push the button all night, because this thing apparently is not working. Oh, helps if I turn it on. OK. So introductions. So who are you? And then since Brian is not here tonight, by the way, how many people saw the email where I basically said there are no excuses for coming to class? Did you guys see that email? Who did not see my email? OK, so I usually send out an email blast. And uh, the joke is that Brian is actually not here tonight because his fifth grade son is graduating from fifth grade. And so he has decided to go to graduation. So that's why I said even if your son is graduating fifth grade, um, you should come tonight. So basically, Brian is not here for what I consider to be a relatively reasonable good reason for not coming. So anyway, who are you and what's the best, best advice Brian ever gave to you? And since we are going to pretend it's recording, uh, Royce is going to go first. And he's going to uh, then pass the microphone around. My name is <laughs> Royce. And the best advice Brian ever gave? Yes. Take action. That's the best advice he ever gave you? Well, that's pretty strong. Uh, I'm Nick. 
Um, can it be like a whole concept of sure. like? Yeah, whatever you want. <laughs> uh, on the tenant screening of just treating it like a business and yes you're i don't know if it was you or him but said it's like giving somebody a three hundred thousand dollar asset yeah i think that's a perfect example yeah what it is yeah i love seeing brian my advice through brian being reiterated sometimes because that's totally a james concept but that's cool i love it he's usually he can share this uh it's i'm sean and i'd have to say it's his uh asset protection class was my best advice I that was great Okay, that's all Brian, by the way. That is not me. My name is Elijah. I think I'm going to have to agree with Nick on just the, the strong tenant screening to help uh, address issues even before they come up, kind yep. of help mitigate some of those issues. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Welcome. My name is Caroline, and I think the best advice was mostly the property management classes, uh -huh. um, tenant challenges, and things like that. Mm. Good. And she was the winner tonight of the, of the real estate course. I'm Karen, and I think the advice that he gave to my husband was uh, basically just do it. <laughs> Good, and you're, you're actively investing too, right? This is your second yes. week yes. as an active investor. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm Curtis. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate Brian's advice. The Nike slogan, just, just do it. Yeah, this is almost like Brian's eulogy. Like, if people are like, <laughs> what do you remember most about Brian? He's not gone forever. He's just skipping class tonight. My name's JB, and uh, best advice would just um, probably be the tenant classes that we did awesome. a couple months cool. ago. Apparently, that's like the best class. I'm Nick, and uh, I don't know, Brian's given so much advice as well as you, so I, I, it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. All the advice was good. That's great. Uh, I'm Zinni, and this is the first time I'm here. So. Oh, so you didn't get any advice from Brian. Yeah. I'm Chad, and I really like the uh, managing properties, uh, using property managers. Wow, that is crazy. That is a really popular class. I'm uh -oh. Tammy, oh, and uh, I would say the best advice Brian ever gave to me was very recently. Oh, he said I remember during, what advice is He this. said during class that instead of introducing myself as James's wife, I should introduce myself and say James is my husband. James is my <laughs> husband. That is correct. You got to give it to Denise. What are you doing to me for? You're in charge of the microphone. <laughs> My name is Denise, and I actually like Brian's bookkeeping and accounting See? setups. Isn't which that crazy? mine was just by chance almost identical. Yours was very close. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He does a great job, and the the stuff is really good. I just it's it's a dry topic for me. I don't seek that stuff out. I don't do my own books. Tammy does them, or the accountant does them. But yeah. My name's Will, and I haven't been around long enough to get any advice from Brian. Oh, really? You only came last week the one time? Oh, okay. There you go. My name is Eric. Uh, the asset management class and the organization of legal paperwork. Oh, yeah. That's the bookkeeping and accounting one, bookkeeping isn't it? Bookkeeping class, yeah. yeah. Those are probably my two favorite. Yeah. Oh, so there's two different ones. The bookkeeping and accounting one, he goes over like how to organize the files yeah. and stuff? Yeah. Is that the one? The spreadsheet he gives us and he goes over. So the deal analysis or the organizing of your files or the asset protection one? Asset protection, yes, and okay. the bookkeeping one as well. Okay. The spreadsheet and, like you said, the Dropbox and all Very the categories. Cool. It's nice. Awesome. Thank you. Name is Jesse, and it's first class, so who's Brian? Oh, there you go. <laughs> who's, that's like the best thing. You should text that out to Brian. Say, someone just said, who's Brian? <laughs> that's great. Uh, my name is Dan, and uh, 
This is probably Brian slash James. I just like the scientific approach to real estate investing. Oh yeah, and uh, and also uh, like role modeling. You know that you guys do role modeling. Yeah, like looking at other people. No, no, you guys are role models. For do you guys? Oh no, oh, that's scary for me. Investors. You guys knew how bad I was. I'm not sure you'd want to be me to be a role model or something like that. Don't you ever get embarrassed when people like put you on this high level and stuff like that? Tammy knows. She lives with me. She's like. Yeah, you don't want to be James role model. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Allison, and I guess the best advice Brian ever gave me was um, the uh, tenant screening and whatnot, because that happened when I was actively screening tenants, so that was really It was like appropriate, timing. like perfect timing? Yep. That's awesome. Cool. Did I miss anybody? Oh, look, see, it worked. That's good. All right, Royce in charge of the microphone. Royce, you want to take charge? So we have the uh, podcast. What's that? You're all over it. You're on it. Uh, so we have the podcast up, and provided the recordings work, we do post these onto the podcast. There's like 110 different classes up there now. So if you are coming in as your first time or first couple times, if you missed any classes, there's like 110 classes up there. There's everything except asset protection, the lease, and the option agreement uh, should be up on the website. So all the stuff about property management, screening tenants, um, finding deals, analyzing deals, all that stuff should be up there as a recording, and uh, you can go listen to the podcast. Um, and this, I think, goes to Apple's iTunes, but if you need other things, just go ahead and email me, and I'll get you yeah. other It's ones. on Stitcher, Spotify, all the above. So. Yeah, it got moved to all of them? Mm -hmm. Good. Holly's been doing a good job. Yeah. That's awesome. And the quality of the recordings are, I just listened for the first time. They're pretty good. I was impressed. The more recent ones or the older ones? Uh, it was the recent ones. But. Yeah. Yeah, they, once you started using the microphones, they've actually gotten better, so... All right, so how to acquire a multi-million dollar investment portfolio while earning just $5,000 a month. Uh, this is largely gonna be story time. Um, so I will kind of tell you some stories. Maybe we'll take a seat and kind of go over this with you. Um, but the background of this is, um, how many people have come to class for the first time ever and uh, you guys filled out like the new form and you got a copy of this book? Anyone not get a copy of this book? Did you, did you fill out a form? Yeah. Oh, here, just read it. So basically, in that, in that thing, um, we go over the basics of Nomad. And Nomad, as I'll explain here, is you buy a home as an, as an owner-occupant, you live there for a year, you then buy a new house, you convert the previous one that you were just living into a rental, and then you repeat the process until you have as many rentals as you want. Okay? So you can go in there, you can buy a property 0% down, 3% down, 3.5% down, 5% down. Then you go and you repeat the process, keep acquiring them, and you're, so you're able to acquire rental properties um, one per year because the lenders require that you stay in the property for at least a year. But you can repeat this process as many times you want until you acquire rental properties. And so when we started teaching this a few years ago, and actually uh, Royce was one of the people that came up with the sort of idea um, originally, he was, he was kind of telling me, I'm like, that math is really interesting. We should go do some modeling of it. And so I wrote a book on the model and all the math behind it. Um, so the challenge I've been getting with this is, and you, you tell me if this is right for you, how many people want to move every year? Raise your hand if you'd like to move every year. Right? Yeah. So this is the number one complaint I get when, so when I tell people about no matter They're like, that sounds amazing. I'm able to go acquire you know, 10 rental properties, and I only need to come up with 3% you know, down, 3% down, 5%, 5%, 5%, 5%, 5%. But then the challenge is I got to get my spouse. And by the way, it's always a spouse. It's never anyone who comes to class. They're always telling me, I would totally do this, James, except I can't get my spouse on board for moving every year, right? I mean, I've heard this so many times. So th that's been the challenge, is that people didn't want to move. So I say, hey, 
No worries. The other complaint we get is with this book, we actually showed people how much you need as if you started with that amount of money. So we walk you through, we said, okay, if you had, you know, uh, five, I'm sorry, if you had uh, 10 5% down payments, this is how much dollar amount you would need in order to be able to do this model for 10 properties and acquire 10 rentals. And the, the challenge I had with some people is they'd say, James, I don't have $150,000 sitting around. How can we do this without having the $150,000 sitting around? So I wrote another book. And the next book was the 3K book. Do we have a copy of the 3K book? Thank you. You knew I was going to, oh, no, that's the 5K book. Do we have the 3K book? Ugh. So here's the 3K book. So uh, two Christmases ago, or three Christmases ago, uh, people came to the Christmas party, and I gave out this book as a gift that night. And this book basically tells you how to do the entire model, starting with a single $3,000 down payment in your bank account. And it basically uses lease options. So you acquire a property, you put your tenant in there, I'm sorry, you acquire a property, you live there for a year, and then on your way out, instead of putting just a regular tenant, you put a tenant in there who's going to option the property, and buy it from you a year or two or three down the road, and you use that option fee in order to do the down payment for the next property. And so I teach a class on this, it's available on the podcast or on the website, so you can go watch it. And the book walks you through all the math. So this was Christmas 2016, something like that, that we did that for. So here's what basically the difference. So this was the old traditional nomad model, which I just covered on the previous slide. Now we do, we buy a home as an owner-occupant, which is the same. We live there for a year, which is the same. Then we buy a new home, all that's the same. This is different. Instead of actually converting it to a rental, we convert the previous to a lease option to a tenant buyer. We replace the sold properties with new properties, and then we repeat the process, okay? So this is the difference between the regular one, which is the one in this book that everyone got, compared to the one where we use lease options so you can do the entire model with just a single $3,000 upfront fee. And actually, you can do it with less. You, instead of doing the first property with 1% down, you could have done the first property with 0% down, which is what we're gonna model tonight. But you could see how you could do this whole model and then you repeat with option fees, okay? So those were the two books. Now, tonight, you guys get the 5K book. And so, one of the interesting things about the 5K book is, I'm gonna show you how to do the Nomad model without moving into the properties, okay? If you, how many people came to the class where I, did, I showed you how to do Nomad without moving in? Okay, so if you saw that class, you're gonna be a couple steps ahead because some of the things you learned in that class are gonna help you there, and, and there's gonna be a lot of stuff that we didn't go over in that class, but if you want to, go back and watch the recording of that, it's on the podcast. And that's a good class. It basically shows you how to go acquire all these properties uh, without moving into the properties. And so here's the link, if you guys need to get the link for that, or go listen to the podcast to be able to do it, okay? So, can you do this? The, actually, before the book was even published, I, uh, I went out to Facebook and I posted on Facebook, um, here's a picture of the cover of the new book I'm writing. We're about to go have it printed and everything else. And uh, so someone said to me, uh, James, you know, not everybody makes $5,000 a month. You know, uh, so you know, you're really targeting a very small group of people. And so the question I'm gonna ask you kind of to get started, I'm gonna deal with the $5,000 a month really fast. I'll go into a lot of detail, but I'll, I'll cover that in a second. So here's the big question. Can you do this model on less than 5K? What do you think? Do you think that it's possible? Do you think I just arbitrarily picked $5,000? The answer is yes. You can do this with less, okay? The, the model I used tonight, we're doing it with a, 
$320,000 property, could you find a $200,000 property in northern Colorado? You still can, but what is it? What is it? Yeah, it's going to be smaller. It's probably going to be where? It's going to be in Fort Collins? It's going to be in Old Town? It's going to have, be on acreage in Old Town, right? $200,000 property? No? Where is it going to be? Probably in Greeley. Maybe Evans, right? So, what's that? None. None, Colorado. Yeah. So you can do it. And it, it, I'm using a concept that I've, I've kind of just recently called choke up on the bat. How many of you played baseball or softball as a kid? Do you guys, when you were batting, there was this crazy guy in my high school. He was like a, he was a freak of nature. The kid was like so stocky and built up. He'd take one of those big uh, Easton, you guys have Easton bats where you're from? Is that what they're called, Easton bats? They had this big bat, like aluminum bat, had the head that was like, do you ever see those uh, plastic red bats you play with as a wiffle ball with as a kid? Like the, they're like the, um, the Barney Rubble sort of like Bam Bam sort of big bat things. This Easton bat was like so huge. The head on it was like monstrous. And this bat must have been like 52 inches long or something crazy. And this guy was huge in high school. And so he'd go up there. He used to play third base. He had this crazy arm on him. So he'd go up there and he'd like be, he like wouldn't even have his hand so that the thing was on the bottom. He'd have his hand over it so he was way down the bat. So he almost had like one hand on it. And the pitch would come. He'd be like, Boom, and he'd just crush the thing. It would just go off and off and off and off. I'd get up there in this huge bat, and I'd like go to swing, and I'd just start swinging. I couldn't even get the bat around before like the ball was past me, like doing this stuff, right? So what did the coach tell me? Choke up on the bat. And so I, instead of trying to use this huge bat, he'd tell you instead of having your hands all the way at the bottom, you kind of move your hands up so that you can get the bat around quicker and make contact with the ball, okay? So it's the same idea in real estate. If you can't do the $320,000 you know, kind of houses, what do you do? You start smaller. You go and you buy a $200,000 property, or you do some other things to kind of make it work for you. But it's this idea that if it doesn't work for you as is, you can't handle it, can't get the bat around, do something else. Look at less expensive properties. So I modeled this particular class off of um, new construction property available in either Greeley or Severance, but it's basically the lowest priced detached single family home property you can find in Northern Colorado is really what I modeled it after. So you can go find multiple ones of this. It's not like a unusual deal you can't find. All right, so you can also, if you can't do it with 5,000, because one of the things I'm gonna talk about tonight is saving money. And if you can't do it because you're like, hey listen, my family as a whole, which is what the 5,000 based off, it's not based off an individual. My $5,000 per month for my whole family, we're barely making ends meet. We don't have enough extra to save $50 a month, $100 a month, $160 a month, whatever it is. So one of the things you might need to do is improve your defense, budget, and reduce expenses. So if you are not at the point where you can do that, I know these sound like they're not sexy topics, right? I mean, you come to real estate class, you're like, I'd like to learn how to become rich investing in real estate where I don't need to go budget or save money or do anything like that. I just want to go out there and wholesale or flip houses or buy rental properties and have all this passive income coming in where I don't need to do this. But in reality, if you don't have the down payment stuff, you need to get better at defense. You need to get better at budgeting. You need to get better at reducing your expenses. So maybe in addition to coming to these classes, you decide to go take some classes on how to budget, how to cut your expenses, how to reduce things, how to live frugally, how to do ramen noodles or whatever it is. Okay. The other thing you might be able to do is house hack. Any people came to the class where I did on house hacking? Only one person came to house hacking? Listen to the podcast. So does anyone not know what house hacking is? Raise your hand. 
Okay, so a couple people don't know. So house hacking is a concept of buying a house and then renting out part of your house in order to get income from it so that you can afford a larger house. So uh, the biggest, the most common example is probably uh, buying a duplex. Where you go and you buy a duplex, you live in half of it and you rent out the other side of the duplex in order to get money coming in to help support the income, support you so that you don't have to pay as much for your side of the house. Okay? And you can do this, it doesn't have to be duplexes. Uh, one of the things that Mary, who's coming next week, is going to talk to you about is she house hacks and has roommates in her house. And I'll let her, I don't want to steal her thunder, but she's been doing some pretty phenomenal things. For example, I think she is able to collect enough money from her tenants living in the house to pay for her down payment for the house next year. Okay? So if you think, you know, I, I can't do this, I'm not able to save up enough. Mary's able to do it and have her tenants pay for the down payment for the next house because she's willing to house hack, okay? So that's what house hacking is. Go listen to the presentation. It's really good on house hacking stuff. And then come to class next week where Mary talks about a ton of that stuff. So let's jump right into this thing because it's one of the biggest objections I get. Whenever someone sees the cover of this book, they immediately are like, oh, I don't earn $5,000 a month or you know, this book is going to be crazy numbers because $5,000 a month is a lot of money to do that. And how can I do this? So I wanted to show you what some numbers are for median household income for 2016. So what is the US median household income in the United States? 75,000 I heard, what else? 50,000, what else? 60,000, 82,000, any other guesses? 48,000, there's no prize by the way, everyone gets books, everyone's a winner tonight, okay? So the actual US household median income this year, I'm sorry, for 2016, this is the latest U.S. Census data, is 57,617. So when this person actually said to me on, on the website, James, you know, not everybody makes $60,000 a year or $5,000 a month. I said to them, you're right. The median household income is about 57,000, which means about half of the U.S. makes about $5,000 a month as a household. So this is about half of the population that does this, okay? What is Colorado? What is the median household income for the entire state? Is it more or is it less than the median for the US? More, less, which one? <laughs> Are you looking stuff up online again? Oh, okay. So Colorado is 65, 685. That is the median household income for Colorado. And by the way, household income, both, both spouse and other spouse are working. That's sort of like the definition of it. So it's not just one person, okay? What about Denver? It didn't have Fort Collins, or I would have put Fort Collins numbers in there. What is the Denver median household income? This is the Denver, Aurora, Lakewood, whatever it is, kind of metro area. 82, 75, what else? 70. Is it less than this? It's more, Denver's bringing the average up? Denver is 71,926, okay? So when I go and I call a book, how to do this with 5K, it might be an unreasonable taking into account pretty much half the population. Especially if you think, you know, we can play better defense, we could choke up on the bat, I don't think so, okay? So this is kind of a chart showing you this. Colorado is a little bit above the average. Uh, Nebraska is actually right on median. Vermont is right on the median, so is Oregon. So you can kind of get a gauge of what those are. If you want to look at those later, you can go view the uh, podcast slides or the slides on the website if you want to do that, okay? That's a big map and that's the other one. 
So the other thing I wanted to point out, one of the reasons I, I decided on $5,000 to begin with is I thought of it in terms of hourly wages. So in order to earn $60,000 a year, how much do you need to earn hourly? You and your spouse, two working people in a family, how much do you need to earn hourly in order to, in order to earn $60,000 a year? $14 an hour, I hear. $30 an hour, I heard. What else? What do you think? 28. So two people, how much does each person need to earn hourly in order to make $60,000 a year as a household? 1442 is what someone who did the math just said. So the book and presentation was based on 5K. To earn $5,000 per month, that's $60,000 per year. Assume you and your spouse work, and I assume that you worked uh, 40 hour work weeks, 50 weeks a year. So 40 hour work weeks, 40 hours times two people times 50 weeks equals 4,000 hours. $60,000 per year divided by 4,000 hours between the two of you equals $15 an hour. Did you divide by, did you take? 2,080 hours. Okay, so I didn't do 2,080 hours, I did 2,000 hours. You did 52 weeks, okay? And then I actually did two people. So you basically have uh, uh, 2,000 hours per person per year. So it's 4,000 hours. 60,000 divided by 4,000 equals $15 an hour. Yep, divided by two, and that would be close. Pre-tax. Well, this is, this is my numbers. They're pre-tax. This is not like net after things. So I have taxes coming out when I model it. So yeah, to answer, someone in the back room just said, this is pre-tax, and yes, this is pre-tax. When I did my modeling for the book, you will see I have a tax rate in there. I say you make 5,000, I take off whatever the tax rate is for that, I, I looked it up online, and so basically you have your net dollars. So it is after tax, okay? So this number, I should say, this is before tax. Yeah, Chris. Why 50 weeks and not 52? People want to take off some time. Yeah, like a little bit of time. You take, you know, you take off a week for Christmas, take off a week for Thanksgiving, or you don't work 40 hours that week. Maybe you take off a little trip over the summer, or you go see your kids graduate from college, or whatever it is. You might be ill. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons, okay? Now, I'm going to ask you this. Raise your hand in here if you work more than 40 hours a week, please. More than 40 hours a week. Okay, let's do the opposite. Raise your hand if you work less than 40 hours a week. One, two, three, four, five, six. So six of the class of about, I don't know, what are here, 20-something? 21. 21 or so. So basically, one-third of the room worked less than 40 hours, okay? So is it reasonable to work more than 40 hours a week, especially if you're in your hustle phase of your life? I think so. 60-hour work week. 60 hours times two people times 50 weeks a year, 6,000 hours a year, $60,000 divided by 6,000 hours equals $10 an hour. Can you get a job in Northern Colorado making $10 an hour? Can you get two 30-hour-a-week jobs in, in Northern Colorado earning $10 an hour? In case you're wondering, Walmart pays $10 an hour, Qdoba pays $10 an hour. I know this because I have a teenage son, okay? Yeah, it pays more than 10, okay? So, can you go find some place where if you're willing to hustle, if you're willing to work 60 hours a week, where you can make $10 an hour and hit this number as a household. Totally. So is my $5,000 a month crazy? 
Is there anyone who still thinks it's crazy? Okay. Walmart, keto, I pay $10 an hour to start. Talked about that. So let's talk about inflation. So you're here tonight. Thank you for coming. <laughs> so I think in another class, you basically said, you know, 3% per year raises is not realistic. Did we talk about this? Yeah. Okay, I got data for you. So is it reasonable to assume you'll get a 3% per year raise? Because that's one of the things I modeled. I said, hey, listen, are you able to get a 3% per year raise kind of doing this? And so um, anecdotally, six hours, 60 hours a week at $10 an hour, you can improve or expand your skills, try to get a better job than a $10 an hour job, constantly be looking for better job opportunities, and some regular cost of living raises. So it's possible to do that, just anecdotally. But I've got data. A more mathematically backed data suggests, suggests, all right, typo. That 3% a year is reasonable. So the government suggests that consumer price index is a measure of inflation. And I think I cover what a CPI is. So CPI, if you guys want to go look it up, this is the uh, Bureau of Labor and Statistics for the US government. And they talk about what CPI is. And I'm going, to talk, I'm going to go over it in a little bit of detail. Consumer price index. And it answers what it is and how it's calculated so you can get an idea. But it is a measure of inflation. So actually, let me go back one so you don't see those numbers yet. So what the CPI basically is, and this is a layman's version of it. Imagine the government, on your behalf, you're paying them to do this. They go out there and they say, okay, there's a hundred or a thousand different items that most people as consumers buy. Gasoline, bread, milk, um, you know, all the different stuff that you would normally need to buy to live. And what they do is every month they go and they price that as to what it would cost. And they see what it would cost you to pay for all those normal items this month and they compare it to last month. And the change in price from last month to this month gives them what the kind of like consumer inflation rate is. As to what your cost to actually buy goods and stuff like that is going up each year. Does that make sense? And so they're doing this calculation every single month to do that. And so that's what they use for their inflation-based calculations. They determine what inflation is based on that. Okay? So if you go back and you look historically, and I'm getting back to your point, Sean. At some point, as soon as my thing starts working. So between 1929 and 2018, you can go to their uh, Bureau of Labor and Statistics website. You can go to the calculator and do this. But the average inflation rate per year was 3.1%. Now, we haven't started talking about income going up. We're just talking about the cost of goods to live. Okay? So average is 3.1. The median, the middle most number is 2.7. Some months it was much higher than 2.7. Some months it was much lower. The average was 3.1. The median, though, the middlemost number was 2.7. Okay? Anyone, anyone confused or not with me at this point? Okay. If we look at historical median inflation-adjusted earnings in the U.S., because basically they will go and they will do their census data and they will figure out what the earnings are for people in the U.S., and then they will adjust back for inflation. They will take these inflation numbers and they will make adjustments to how much people earn over time. And they have data going all the way back to, I think, the 60s or something like that. So if we look at historical median inflation-adjusted earnings in the U.S., so your wages are likely to increase with inflation about 3% a year, but your buying power is likely to remain the same. So you may be getting a 3% per year wage increase, according to the statistics. I'm going to show you a chart here in a second. But your ability to buy stuff is the same. So your standard of living doesn't change. It's not like you're getting ahead. So you basically you earn more, but you're, how you're buying things is basically the same. Okay? This is a chart showing 
the inflation-adjusted median earnings of males from 2016 to 1960. I didn't do females because back in the 1960s or so, and actually even to more current, females did not earn as much as men. They actually had a pretty significant uptick. So I wanted to show you the male one. Okay? But you can go look at it. It's all online. This shows you that in 2016, males were earning about 50-something thousand dollars as their median inflation-adjusted income. And that it's been pretty consistent. There's been a couple dips, but it's been pretty consistent all the way back to whatever this is, 1975 or something like that. And then actually was on a decline. So people were earning less money back in the 60s and early 70s. Today we're earning about the same if you adjust for inflation as we were back then. So we are seeing 3% per year inflation-adjusted wages. Even if there's a one, you know, a single person's case or you know, a group of people like engineers or school teachers or whatever, they may not have seen the exact one, but over a large sample set, it has been the same. It's been about median. Tell your employer that. Tell your employer that. Go show them the data. Yeah. Okay? But I'm, I'm just telling you, that's, I, I went and looked it up because I was like, maybe you're right. Maybe my assumption for 3% wage increases was optimistic. I didn't think it was, but maybe it was. And so I looked. And that's what the data suggests. Yeah. Yeah. Over the last 10 years, it's been 2% or less. Sure. In nor and that's specific. You're talking about wage increase or you're talking about inflation? Wage increase and yeah. inflation, and that's specific to Northern Colorado. Oh, I don't do the Northern Colorado one. I'm doing national. So it's possible Northern Colorado has been suppressed a little bit. I think I, I read something recently that said that uh, basically wages in 08 and 2018 look almost identical right now. Um, if you do adjust for inflation. I don't think that was the case. I don't think the cost of living is, well, cost of living has gone up, but inflation of goods has been that significant. Oh, it has gone up. It's gone, it's gone significantly. I looked at data for that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's been up. It's not, in 10 years, that's 20% without compounding. So that's pretty significant. Yeah. All right. So let's go over scenarios. This is kind of like story time. So I'm going to start off pretty simple. If you just started saving $160 a month, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of explain to you how I do these calculations because it's important for you to understand it. And I go into a ton of detail in the book, but I would like you to be interactive and, and kind of understand. So imagine for a minute, I took $5,000 a month, and I, I subtracted out whatever your taxes are. I figured out what your tax rate is, I subtracted that. And then you're left with a certain amount of money that is your spendable income each month. And then I look at what your expenses are, and I say all of your expenses, add up so that you have $160 left per month at the end of the month. So you take your income, subtract out your, your taxes, you subtract out $160 that you're saving, and the rest of your money is your expenses. Okay? That's sort of how I did my calculation. Then for this, I basically said, your $5,000 a month is going up at 3%. Your expenses are also going up at 3%, so that that $160 a month that you're saving is also going up at 3%. Does that make sense to everybody? So you're saving a little tiny bit more each month because you're basically saying, my income's going up 3%, my expenses are going up at 3%, and now my savings are going up at 3%, so that I'm saving a tiny bit more each month. But at the very beginning, we're saving $160 a month. In this case, you're a renter. So you do not own a property. And rents are going up as part of your expense pool. They're going up at 3% per month. So your, your expenses are all increasing there. It's all included in that. We're gonna start with $5,000 in savings, just because I wanted everyone to be able to start with the same amount of money. 
and then you're saving $160 per month and you adjust for inflation as you get your raises and stuff like that. So it's going up 3%. If you go ahead and take that and you don't invest in the stock market, you just stick it underneath your mattress or you stick it in a savings account that gets zero, how much money do you have at the end of 40 years? $160 a month that's increasing at whatever inflation is and you're saving that and you're not putting it and investing in anything. How much do you think you have? What's your guess? Five thousand, sixty-nine, sixty-nine thousand, a hundred thousand. Any other guesses? You end up saving one hundred and fifty-one thousand dollars over forty years. That is barely enough to retire. Okay. What if we? What if you can't save one hundred sixty a month? You're seeking out knowledge on how to do the real estate stuff. You should seek out how to model on how to save money. Yeah. It is the future value. So it is inflated dollars. Okay. But, it, but it's, all we didn't do is we didn't adjust back for inflation. And I'll tell you the general rule of thumb is it's about a third over a 40 year period at a 3% inflation rate. So if you want to do some really quick math in your head, divide by three and that's about what it is in today's dollars. Okay? So you're seeking out knowledge. If you do, can't save the 160 month, you're seeking out knowledge how to do real estate stuff, maybe you should go look at some budgeting stuff on how to reduce your expenses, how to get your cost of living down. Focus on increasing your financial education, budgeting, reducing expenses, increasing income, self-improvement, side hustles, read books, podcasts, read stuff online, excuse me, whatever it takes to build your skills to be able to save more money. Now, what if you do the 160, but instead of sticking it in your mattress, you say, I'm going to invest it in the stock market. And let's say you knew of the unbeatable stock that could get 8% every year, every, no matter what. Didn't change. So you're still a renter. You still don't own any property. You started with $5,000 in savings. And you saved $160 a month that goes up with inflation each month. And you invest in the stock market. You get 8% per year return to the stock market. By the way, is that realistic? What do you think is realistic for the stock market? Five, six. Eight, you say eight? Good, I used eight. What'd you say? You think eight's realistic? Okay. What else? Anything else? Five, six? Okay. So what if you were able to go get 8%, maybe the stock, and by the way, maybe stock market returns vary. I'll talk about that later when we do Monte Carlo. So let's look at what Monte Carlo simulations are. So we're gonna look at this thing at 8%. I'll come back to this 160 and you're getting in the stock market, but let's see what Monte Carlo looks like. How many people don't know what Monte Carlo simulations are? Okay, so Monte Carlo allows us to run multiple iterations of something knowing that numbers can vary over time. So for example, instead of using an 8% return, we used, you said, hey listen, this month the stock market was on pace to do somewhere between negative 20 and positive 36 such that the median is still 8%. So you do enough of these things, it's still around 8%, but it's somewhere between really, really up that month or really, really down that month. So you could have months that are really good or months that are really bad. About 65% of the returns are between zero and 16%, which sort of makes sense for the stock market, right? Most of the time the stock market's going somewhere between zero and 16, but sometimes you have a really, really good month and sometimes you have a really, really bad month. But overall, about 8%-ish. Does that make sense? Okay, so if you did that, if we graphed 5,000 times of doing this, we can see how frequently they incur, and it might look like this, okay? So all these dots are individual returns. 
So the return numbers are over here. And so a lot of them around this sort of 8% thing. But we do have some that are like negative 10. We do have some that are above 25. And these are 5,000 different just random points of what the stock market might have done in a given month. This curve here, though, shows you how frequently the actual returns happen. So in this case, you can see that 8% or so is one of the most frequent returns you're getting. There's a lot of ones that are lower than that and less frequently as they go down here. So we only had a couple returns that were up above 25. We had a couple that were about negative 10. But overall, they're sort of in this 8% range. Okay? Now, with, one, with a Monte Carlo, we can use that range of stock market returns. And what does the yearly rate of return look like? And then what does, our, does that do to our net worth? So we might run this scenario and say, okay, instead of getting 8% every single month, we have some random return for that month, where most of the time it's around 8%, but sometimes it's negative, sometimes it's positive. And this just shows you the return from basically month zero through month 480. And if we invest $160 a month and we keep doing this, what does it actually grow to when you do this? So this shows you what our return looks. We started off with $5,000, and then over time, it kind of grows. And this, this line is bumpy, showing you that sometimes it's going up, sometimes it's going down, but overall, the trend is upward because the, the median, what it typically is at is about 8%. So you can see it, it would be this if we had these random numbers that tended to be around 8%. Does everyone follow? Okay. Now what happens is, what if we ran this whole thing again? We, we did a whole nother set of random numbers because who knows, it could be a different stock that we invest in or it could be a different time period. What if we ran it again? Returns would be random again for each month. Some months would grow faster. So one month in the first run, you might have negative 10 and the next time might be positive two or positive 20. And some months will be slower, negative return. How might this impact our account balance? And, no, and by the way, when I'm talking about this particular scenario, we're not doing any real estate yet. So all it is is the stock market. So this is a second run. So the first run, I think, was the red one. The second run was the blue one. And it looked really, really similar, especially early on, where it didn't have a bunch of a difference. But later on, one started trailing the other, and the other one started doing better. And then they swapped, and one started doing better than the other. And then it kind of swapped again, swapped again. And at the very end, one of them was much worse than the other one, because it's random. And who knows if when you're about to retire, if the stock market doesn't poop the bed, right? It could poop the bed right here, and then all of a sudden you're much worse off than you thought you were going to be. Or it could go crazy down here and really improve your output. So this is if you ran it two times. What if we added a third one in there? We do the same thing over again. We just said, okay, let's do another run. And so now we've got three different lines, and th this third line did better. It improved. And you can see that you, the more lines you're adding, the wider the range is, especially the farther out you go. Does that make sense? So we're doing this kind of Monte Carlo simulation by running multiple iterations of the same scenario. What if we ran it four times? Same idea. It's expanding out and getting bigger and bigger. Okay? Now, this is 10 times. And you can see if we run it 10 times, it starts to be a range. And sometimes, as you can see in the chart, sometimes it's way above and sometimes it drops back down below, you don't know if your, your one is going to be always be better or one's always going to be worse. It's random, like the stock market, like real estate market. We don't know if properties are going to go up 3% this year or 10% this year or negative 10. No one knows. We can make guesses, but we've, I've shown in some other classes that economists are not good at predicting the future. Okay? So 10 items summarized. Monte Carlo allows us to run a large number of these cases and then summarize them. Instead of looking at each individual one, we could say, let's look at a range of values. 
on 100 runs, we could look at them and say, out of 100 runs, what was the best case? If we ran this 100 times, what's the best case? What's the worst case? We can also say crazy things like, 50% of the time, I do this or better. Or 25% of the time, I do this or worse. Okay? Or one out of 100 times, it's this good. And we can look at those kind of results. So here's a chart summarizing the returns. Remember before I told you we were doing those random returns and you could get about 8%? This is 100 different runs of the stock market. This line right in the middle shows you the 50th percentile. That means that half of the returns were higher than this, half of the returns were lower. And then each one of these bands shows different levels. So like this top end, I think is the 99th percentile, which means there's only one value greater than this. There's only one value lower than this out of the 100 we run. And it shows you for each month what the range of values are. Does that make sense? Okay. This then shows you your net worth. Over 100 runs, what your net worth would be if you invested $160 per month in the stock market and you got some random return that looked a lot like 8% but could be anywhere from positive, 20, positive 32 to negative 20 or whatever it was. So you can see the range over here. So it could be as high as whatever that is, 800,000 and change, and as low as, I don't know, 600 and something thousand has changed. And there's a range as to what it would be. And you could do this with stocks, you could also do it with real estate. Get a feel. So these were the 10 different ones we ran. Instead of doing 10, I ran 100 and I summarized them. So this chart becomes this chart when I summarize the data, for those that missed that point. Okay. So what I did now is I zoomed in and I'm looking at the last, I don't know, 10 years or so of the data. And the different bands, this is the 1 to the 99th percentile, um, the 5 to 95th, 10, and there's different bands here. So basically, this, this line in the middle is your median. So half the times you're better than this, and half the times you're worse than this. And so by the time you get to month 480, it looks like you're about 750 or so in net worth from doing the $160 a month. How much did we do when we didn't invest in the stock market? What was the number? 151. If you invest in the stock market, about half the time you're going to do better than 750. That's a big difference. Stock market makes a huge difference in what you're investing in. Okay? So let's go over the summary. So if it's fixed 8%, you'd have 848,000 at the end of 40 years. That's what the number is if it's fixed the whole time. If it's Monte Carlo out of 100 runs, 80% of the time it's somewhere between 685 and 878. That's a pretty big range. The 10th percent and the 90th percentile. Half the time it would be better than 768. One time out of 100, or 1% 1 of the time, it would be either 629 and change, or 942. Okay. Do you want to improve your odds? This isn't enough for you. What can you do in order to make enough money to retire on? You could save more money, do more than a 160. You can select better investments. Instead of doing the stock market, maybe you do real estate. And you could select more profitable investments. Instead of having a median that has 8%, you could try to pick an investment that has a median that's 10 or 12 or 15. And it might still have a wide range, but it would be better on the long run if it does stay at median at 11, 12, 13. You could end up really bad, though, if you have it go down a lot while you're about to get out. Okay. All right, so selecting better investments. You guys have probably seen this before in other classes, but this is the areas of return for investing in real estate. There are four different areas of return, and it makes up the whole return on investment in the center. So, what is appreciation? 
What's appreciation? The tendency for real estate prices to go up over time. That's what appreciation is for us. Okay? Can it go down? Over a long period of time, though, has real estate gone up in value? Yes. Okay? So it's a tendency for property values to go up. If we have negative appreciation, if we buy a property this year and next year it goes down 10%, we had negative appreciation. Okay? Cash flow. Any positive or negative cash flow is reflected here. So you take your income on your property, you subtract out all your expenses on it, and whatever's left over is cash flow. Can cash flow be negative? Yes. Can it be positive? Yes. What about tax benefits? What are tax benefits on real estate? In this case, we're talking about depreciation. Okay, so the government gives you the ability to write off the value of the building, not the land, over 27 and a half years for residential properties. So you can, you can basically take that as a tax deduction. Debt pay down. What is debt pay down? Right, the reduction in the principal amount you owe on your loan. So each month that you make a payment on an amortizing loan, a loan that gets paid off over time, you're reducing how much you owe to the bank. Okay? And so debt pay down, you can think of it as you're getting a return as you pay off the house. Okay? So appreciation returns, cash flow returns, tax benefits, debt pay down, overall make up your overall return. We're going to talk for a moment about debt pay down because, in my opinion, debt pay down is one of the most likely, it's almost guaranteed. So can, can real estate values go up and down? Yeah, so appreciation can, be, can fluctuate, right? It could be negative, it could be positive. What about cash flow? Can rents go up and down? Yeah, so cash flow can be negative, it could be positive. So that's sort of like outside your control. These are market, the top half is market dependent. Okay, it depends on what you're doing in the marketplace. Below the line though, debt pay down. If you make your monthly payments, do you pay down on your loan at a set rate every single time? Like, not an exact same amount, but you have a path that you're definitely, you're like guaranteed in quotes to get. Do you make your monthly payment? We're only talking about amortizing loans. Yep, amortizing loans. If you're doing interest only, you're not paying down any part of the loan, so you're not getting a tax rate, you're not getting a return from that. Or you're only paying interest. With an amortizing loan, a 15-year loan, a 30-year loan, loans that say, you know, it's a this-duration loan, those are loans that are paid off over that period of time. So you're getting an amortizing loan. So yeah, if you're basically paying this off, what's the magical thing about a 30-year loan? It's paid off in 30 years. What's the magical thing about a 15-year loan? They're paid off in 15 years. So basically, every time you're making a monthly payment, a certain amount is going to a principal and paying it down. And then you can think of you as getting a return on the payment. Okay? Now, rents could go down, and you could have negative cash flow. This is a different part of the return. Property value can go down, different part of the return. And tax benefits are likely to stay here, but who knows? I mean, you could have a new president come in, new government come in, and change tax rules. Happens all the time. Okay? So it can't guarantee these, but this one is, if you have a contract with your lender that says over 30 years, I'm agreeing to pay off this loan over this period of time, you are getting that return over that time period. Can't change it. Okay? So this is as close to guaranteed as possible. So debt pay down. With traditional amortizing loans, not interest only, doesn't, doesn't work with interest only loans, as you make monthly payments, a portion of that payment pays off the amount that you owe, you owe a little bit less after each payment. If you start off, you borrow $300,000 to buy a house, you make a monthly payment, you don't owe $300,000 anymore. You owe $299 and change. Okay? Next month, you make another one, a little bit less, a little bit less. The amount you pay off in principal each month, is that going up 
or going down over time? It goes up. So the, the longer you own the loan, the more you're paying down on the loan each month. Okay? This is the, how many of you have closed on a house property and they sent you, they showed you a list of uh, like your amortization table where it shows you how much you owed with each payment. How many of you got, got one of those? Okay, so this is what we're talking about here. Everyone glosses over, they like, oh, numbers, sign, bottom, right? But this is actually what we're talking about. It's pretty interesting stuff. Okay, so the amount of loan you pay off of each payment increases over time. So really what happens is you have this black box. You put a down payment in, magical stuff happens in the black box. At the other end, you get a paid off house. Right? That's really what's happening. Down payment, payments over time, paid off house. Okay. So you put $60,000 in an example, you get $300,000 out in the end. This is the formula we're going to use to calculate what our return is from this. Because we're starting off with a certain amount of money that we put in there, the principal. In this case, it's going to be our down payment right here, the P. At the end, we're going to have a paid off house. What's the house worth paid off? And by the way, are we using the inflated value of what it's going to go up over time, or are we using the value from when we bought it? Bought it. Why aren't we using the inflated value? Sort of. That's not the answer I was looking for. So the question, he basically said, because that's the value that doesn't exist to get in the future or something like that. The, the real reason I'm saying that it is some value in the future, the real reason I'm, I'm, I'm asking the question is um, the appreciation automatically takes into account what the value is going to be later. That's the appreciation part of your return. So we're not counting that here. We're saying, hey, listen, in order to get a paid off house at what the current value is, what is the return we're getting? So basically here, we start off with our down payment. This is going to be what the house is worth right now. One plus the interest rate, whatever the interest rate is going to be, over the number of times interest compounded per year, and then the number of years. Okay, so we're going to work through this math, and I'll show you what it is. So 300,000 equals 60,000 times one plus R raised to the 30. What is the return? What's R? Yeah, the return we're getting on that money. What is it, though? What's the number? That's what we're solving for, because we don't know. We know everything else. We know, hey, listen, at the end, this is worth 300,000. We put $60,000 down. One plus R, we don't know what the rate is, over 30 years. Now we're going to solve for R. I'm assuming we're compounding interest at once per year. I did this, uh, these couple slides in another class, and Royce was quick to go look up and calculate out what the monthly compounding was, and it wasn't off by much. Right? It's really close. Yeah. So we're going to solve for the rate to figure out the rate you need to be getting in order to take $60,000 as your down payment and have it be worth $300,000 by the end of year 30. So what rate do we need to get in our money in order to do that? Appreciation is totally different. We just talked about that. It's not the initial value of the house. The house does not need to go up in value in order for you to get this return. Does not need to go up in value. It's based on the value of the house when you buy. Okay, so what is the rate? So it depends. Turns out the rate varies depending on the down payment percentage, how much you actually put down, and the term of the loan. You put down less, your return goes up. You put down more, your return goes down. Okay? Your interest rates, I'll talk about that in a second. The term of the loan matters. So if you have 30 years to pay off the house, that impacts it. Or if you only have 15 years to pay off the house, that impacts it. And if you're selling before the full term of the loan, if you're trying to figure out what your return is you're over a five-year period instead of going to the full 30, then the interest rate matters. If you go the full term, it doesn't matter what your interest rate is. Okay, you could have a 12% interest rate, you're still getting this return. Okay? So let's see the ROI for various down payments in terms. Oops. So this is a chart showing you for different loan programs 
what your R is, what the return you're getting on your money from debt pay down is. Now, quick, before I go show you this, what return were we talking about getting in the stock market? 8%. And I showed you a chart that showed you four different returns we get from real estate. Two of them are on the top, appreciation and cash flow, and those are variable depending on the market, okay? The ones on the bottom, though, are pretty much not guaranteed, but close to guaranteed. Debt pay down if you make your payments, and the taxes, if they keep the current tax law, you're getting those returns. So this is one of the four, and it's the one that if you make your payments, you get this return. So is it really as variable as the stock market is? No, it's pretty solid, right? Okay, so if you go and you put down 20%, which is this big red blob right here, you are getting a 5.511% return on your money. Not variable, it is that return. If you only put down 15%, it's 6.528. If you put down 5%, and when would you put down 5%? If you were doing an owner-occupant loan, which is what? It's like Nomad, right? So if you do Nomad, you put 5% down, you're getting a 10.5% return on your money. As close to the word guaranteed as you possibly can get without being guaranteed. Doesn't matter if the market goes up, market goes down, okay? Uh, FHA loan, 11.823. A 3% down loan, which is the first two or three that we do as Nomad, 12.399. And if you could still get the 1% down loan, which you cannot anymore, it's 16.591. Okay? If you put down a 15-year loan, 20% down the 15-year loan, 11.326, and a 25% down 15-year loan is uh, 9.682. If you do 25% down on a 30-year loan, it's 4.729. So you can see you're getting a decent fixed rate of return on these things uh, by doing the debt pay down part of it. Okay? All right. If you sell before the full term of the loan, come look at this slide. It'll show you what your return is, but I will tell you your return goes down over time, I think. Yeah, the return goes down. So 4.5% 30-year loan, 20% purchase price. ROI from debt pay down would be 6.45, 6.4 in year two, 6.34 in year three. If you went to the full term, it goes to 5.51. So you actually front load this as your return. If you make your payments, you get this return. Tax benefits are likely, unless they change tax law. Appreciation cash flow, I've been talking about this. You guys know that already. Okay, so we just talked about that. If we buy one house and we invest in stocks, so this is not basically buying rental properties or anything. You're just buying one house to live in as an owner-occupant. How does that impact stuff? Is it going to make a big impact? Yeah, it's going to make a huge impact. I'll show you. So nothing down. How many people are aware you can do, you're doing an owner-occupant loan, you're moving into this house, how many people are aware you can do a nothing down loan in our current market right now? Anyone not aware of this? To live in a property, you can do a nothing down loan right now. Owner-occupant, nothing down financing. There's 0% down USDA loan, means you need to go live in a rural property, Windsor qualifies. Um, also, uh, Compass Bank has a 0% down loan program, as does KeyBank. They may be income restricted. Yeah, so all of them have income restrictions, okay? And then if you're a veteran, you can do a VA loan. So there are four different loans that I'm now aware of that you do nothing down in our current marketplace, right now, owner-occupant. Can't do them for investing, owner-occupant. So we're gonna do this, nothing down just to live in, no rentals. Fixes a large part of your living expenses, principal interest. So, remember before we were talking about your expenses, and a part of your expense was your rent, and rent was really going up, you know, 3% a year, so your rent was constantly going up. 
If you do a mortgage though, and this is your mortgage payment, and these are your taxes, these are your insurance and your property, does this go up at 3% a year? No. no, because once you fix it in with the lender, your mortgage payment, your principal and interest part of your payment stays the same. So what does that mean? If you think about you're making $5,000 a month and the $5,000 a month is going up you know, 3% with inflation and all of your other expenses are going up 3% for inflation, but this part is staying fixed, what does that mean about your ability to save money? It increases and it's significant. You would be surprised. And then something magical happens at month 360. What happens at month 360? This goes away. You don't even have that anymore. Where with this model, your rent still is there. So now all of a sudden at month 360, if this was you know, $800 a month or so, that part of it, you get to save an extra $1,800 a month and put it into the stock market. Does that make sense? So it's huge. The difference is big for owning a property. Big, big. Okay. I guess you should also note that your return on investment on the down payment component, that was based on somebody else, a renter. Sure. Helping this pay is rentals. that down payment. Absolutely. Because the four areas were for appreciation cash flow, uh, depreciation, which is only for rental properties, and the debt pay down. So yeah, that's a rental property type of return. Good point. So in this example, we're just buying one house, so we're gonna invest in stocks. We're saving $160 per month, invest in stocks at 8%. It increases with inflation, just like we talked about before, and it's the fixed majority of housing expense. This example I just showed you, where your mortgage payment stays the same for the whole 360 months. That's not true over here, your rent's going up. Now these are going up, but they're smaller, okay? So invest the savings from housing as well. Without a house, but investing 160 per month in stocks from before, you had $848,000 after 40 years. That's the number if you got 8% in the stock market. What do you think it's gonna be by adding a single house? How much? A million eight. What else? I'm sorry? A million four. What'd you say? I'll give you a hint. A $320,000 house growing at 3% per year over 40 years is worth $1.04 million by itself. And you will own that house free and clear. Does that change your guess? A million eight still. What's that? So remember before, it was 848,000 just from saving the 160. But I just told you, you're able to save a lot more with the housing one. So you're saying a million eight, the house is worth a million by itself. We already had 840,000 from just saving the 160, so we think it's gonna be more than a million eight. So you're saying you're taking out The stock market. We're investing in the stock market, because we're not spending anymore. Well, you pay off the house at about 360 months in, so you've got 10 more years left. Three million. I'll tell you, three million's closer. So let's look at the amount saved for the renter and the homeowner. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you the math because I, when I looked at it, I didn't believe it. I had to double check myself. And I'm sure if Brian was here, you would double check my math and I would win a burrito. So in the old model, we were saving $160 and if you increase it at 3% for inflation, it just keeps growing such that in the time you get to year 40, it's about $500 and change you're saving per month. That's just normal inflation, okay? That's what it means. 
Okay? If you adjust for inflation, if we divide these numbers by whatever the inflation was to that point, it looks like this. It is a horizontal line at 160, showing you that $160 right here is worth $160 right here, which is worth $160 right here, which is worth $160 at the end. So this line is really this if you actually adjust for inflation. Okay? Is anyone confused by that? Okay. This is the amount you save with the house. So the first month, when you go buy a house and you move in, is a mortgage pay, let's say you buy a house January 1st. Is there a mortgage payment due January 1st? No. So really, you get like almost a free month of rent. And that's what this is. It shows you that you didn't have to pay this, so you get this amount in your, in your account. Okay? Then after that, you're saving about $160 a month, and it's growing. But it's growing faster than just the inflation rate because your, your payment, your principal and interest part of your payment is staying fixed, and only your insurance and your taxes are going up by 3% a year. Okay? So you're actually saving more and more and more and more and more. Then what happens here? What's magical about this period? It's paid off. Then all of a sudden, you're bumping it up. Now you're saving $4,040 or whatever it is per month additional into the stock market. And that just keeps growing so you invest in that each month when you do it. Okay? What if we adjust this for inflation? That's what this looks like. So basically, we come down here, you have this peak at 2000 it's $160, and then by the time you get over here when you pay off the house, your payment part of it, which was about, I don't know, 1800 or so, that's where you're able to save. Make sense? Okay. What if you compare these two? Oops, compare these two. So this was your $160 a month. You can see you're saving a lot more by owning a house. And this is just a house that you live in, not a rental. You're able to save a lot more money by owning a single house. Yeah? Shouldn't that line begin from the top of the, instead of the bottom of the, from the second month? Here? Yeah. This is your free month of rent. Okay. Then it goes down, you're saving $160 a month. Well, that's your so isn't that accumulating, or is this? No, no, this is the amount per month you're saving. Month. Okay. Yeah, this is not accumulation. Okay. Yep. That's a good question. This is actually the amount you're saving per month. Okay? All right, so just buy one house and we invest in stocks. So how much do you think you have added by adding a single house you live in without a house, but investing $160 a month, you had 848, we talked about that. Remember the house adds a million by itself, plus added savings from being a homeowner over time and invested at 8%. This makes a huge difference. You go from saving 160 per month to saving almost $1,900 per month, 360 months in. It makes a huge difference, okay? Turns out net worth is 4.68 million. One house. Now, you have to be disciplined because this requires you taking any money you save by not having your house price go up and investing it. You have to like, be on your budget, make sure your expenses stay the same, minus whatever the 3% increase is, and taking whatever the difference was and saving it away. So you're saving more and more and more each month in order to accomplish that. And you happen to magically be getting 8% return in the stock market this whole time. And we're just going to check my math. Okay, uh, realize heavily and get 8%. So what happens if we take this model and we add one rental property with 20% down? We go, we uh, buy a house with 0% down, we buy our personal residence, we live there, and we're gonna stay there for the whole 40 years, okay? We're gonna invest $160 per month and the growing amount, saving it in stocks until, we save it in stocks until we have enough to put 20% down as a rental. So we start off with the same $5,000 that all these scenarios started with, and we basically buy a house with nothing down, we live there, and we save our money in the stock market until we have enough for 20% down rental. 
At that point, we buy one single rental property. That's it, nothing more. You don't need to nomad or move into this. You're putting 20% down. It is a non-owner occupant loan. So, recap, you move into the property, 0% down, you live there, it takes you almost 10 years. It actually takes you a little more than 10 years. 10 years to buy, save up for a 20% down rental property and buy it. And then you actually own two properties. Then you just hold those two properties, one's a rental, one's an owner-occupant, all the way through to year 40. Okay, nothing tricky. You're basically saving up your money in your account. This is your stock market account. Started at 5,000, kind of added 160 a month and keep compounding. Eventually you get enough where you have enough for a down payment. Works out to be about $100,000 at that point because house values are going up over this decade. And so you need to have more than you thought you were gonna need for your down payment. It turns out you need about 100 grand. Then you make your down payment, that money comes out of the account, and then your account starts growing again. This is a year like uh, uh, year 12, okay? Whoops. So basically, this is that little peak where we had the down payment, and then your account starts growing again from the 160 you're putting away, whatever the inflation-adjusted one is, and then any cash flow you might be getting, till at the very end, that's your account balance at the end of 40 years, okay? This is what your cash flow looks like. So in this particular example, we didn't have any cash flow and we were living in the property. When we bought our first 20% down property, we got that first month of free payment. So we got rent coming in, but no payment for it. So we had this little peak. That's what that is. One month where we actually had income coming in, but no uh, money going out for the mortgage payment. Then we had negative cash flow. And it took us a few years to get rid of the negative cash flow on this 20% down rental. And then cash flow went positive. And cash flow continued to get positive all the way up to here. What happened right here? Right, we lost our depreciation benefit. We no longer get depreciation after 27 and a half years, so it did this. Where does it show on here where the house got paid off? Where did the house get paid off on this graph? Off the end, off the end right, because we bought the house after year 10. And it takes 30 years to pay off the 30-year loan, so it actually happens off the chart. Okay, so a little bit later from here, cash flow is gonna take a big jump up, because we're not gonna have a mortgage payment anymore. Okay, everyone get that? All right, so we add one rental with 20% down payment. So after 40 years, remember if we didn't have a house, but we invested 160 in the stock market, we had 848,000, just kind of recapping. With a single house you live in and investing the same savings in 8% market, you have a net worth of 4.68 million. What does adding one rental do for you? We discussed cash flow. It worked out to be about $1,800 per month at the end. So basically, at the end of the other model, with the model where you just had a house, you didn't get that cash flow. You didn't have any rental property with cash flow. With this one, you have at least $1,800 coming in per month from cash flow from that property. And it improves when the rental is paid off, which didn't happen. What about net worth? What do you think your overall net worth is by buying an extra rental property is now? 11 million. Any other guesses? 320,000. It's worth a million after 40 years. So it's not worth a million after 30. And it didn't own it for 30 years for the rental. What do you think? We paid more than 320 for it. You did. You paid more than 320. So at the end of the 40 years from today, it's still going to be worth the 120, whatever million. Not quite. No. Right, because it didn't go to the full end. You owe money on it. Yeah. 
Any guesses? Nine million. Okay, let's take a look. Net worth with one rental and saving 8% in the stock market is 5.38 million. Acquiring a rental about every 10 years, it adds almost a million dollars and extra cash flow. Okay? What happens if instead of buying your rental with 20% down? James, I just want to make sure I understand here. So uh, initially we said, yeah, it's 848K is just the stock market invested 160 per month, yep. right? And then we said that the uh, rental property itself would be worth, whatever, 1.4 million on its own, correct? Uh, 1.04, about 1 million. Okay, about a million. And so the, this difference to the 4.68 million, you're saying that that $1,800 per month invested over 10 years, month, and that's month over month, so $21,600 per year invested at 8% return, right? No, it's more complicated than that. So the challenge is you're, you basically took some of the savings that you were getting because you're not saving it anymore. You took that and you paid it as a down payment and you converted it from an 8% stock market return now to a rental. And so it's, you can't just add those numbers to that if that's where you're going with it. Okay. So it's, it's, um, you take from one and you add to another and the, the other one you're adding to is complicated because you have negative cash flow for part of the time. Um, you, know, you, have, you have some other kind of like internal compounding things going on. Once you get to the end where it's paid off, it would be easier to do that math roughly. But even when you're not paid off, it's harder to do. It, it, so what's crazy about this stuff is, and this is why having a calculator, I'll get to you in a second. Um, what's, what's crazy about this stuff is, it's not always common sense. I was blown away by the 4.68 million. I was like, there's no way that could be right. And then I started thinking, you're really investing a lot more than 160. If you plugged in and you just invested 320, I mean, that more than doubles your, your kind of end return. And so, yeah, I mean, if you get to the point where you're saving $1,800 a month or more because you're not making a mortgage payment, you got 10 years worth of those savings, and that's a lot of money to be compounding. And the earlier you do it, the better off it becomes. Right. So that comes out to be like $385,000 over But the years. earlier stuff is bigger because you, know, you don't have an increase on the mortgage principal and interest payment. You basically, that's not going up by 3%. Oh, well, but that's, that's taken into account with your 160 per month inflation adjusted, right? No. No, it's more than that. Because the 160 is going up at 3%, but the mortgage payment, it's now, it's now $1,000, not $1,500 later when you have rent. And so it could be 320 much earlier, like five years in or 10 years in. Okay. Yeah. It's crazy. Right. I, it, see what, I see what you're saying. It is not linear. And, and it's really hard to think about some of these things because the amortization curves work weird and then you're taking money and compounding it and putting it back into the stock market. It gets funky. Yeah. I understand. I want to win a burrito out of this, so go ahead and challenge me on some of my math. Okay, so we did this. Uh, okay, so basically, before we said, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I forgot your question. Okay, I just had a question. Yeah. So why are you buying rentals at 320? Why wouldn't you? I'm just asking, like, you buy like 10 somewhere else? Sure. Kind of same or more return? Yeah, so there's a class we did. Um, I forget what the name of it is, but if you email me, I'll send it to you on as to why not to go buy like you know fifty thousand dollar rentals in other markets. There's a whole bunch of stuff. It's largely to do with capex. Um, I personally do not, um, and there are there are some really compelling reasons to do it. Um, if I wasn't running over on time, I would answer your question. Come see me after class. But there's some really good reasons. There's like a two hour class on it. Okay, so before we basically bought a house, we lived in it. 
and we saved up enough money using that $160 a month or whatever it was until we had a 20% down payment. You say to me, okay, James, I'll tell you what. I can probably get my spouse to do one move, right? So we're gonna be able to do one nomad property. We'll go buy a property with 0% down, and then we will save up, and once we get enough for a 3% down payment to buy one additional property, we will go ahead and nomad once. But that's it, James, we're not doing this anymore. We're gonna have one rental property, the one we lived in originally with 0% down, and we're gonna, we're gonna buy another property to live in permanently with 3% down. So we don't have to save up for 20. Okay. So before, it took us about 10 years to save up for the 20% down payment. Now, this was the 20 year, this was the 20% down one, now we're able to buy our second property here because we only needed to save up, I think 3%, I think is what I used here, 3% down. So you buy it much earlier, like three years in or something, and then you have your second property early on, but you don't buy any more. Does everyone follow along? All you're doing is you're moving up when you're buying your rental property and you're moving into it to be able to get less down payment. Everyone follow? So cash flow. This was the cash flow when we did the 20% down. By the time we bought it, we had one really good month because we didn't have a mortgage payment, and then cash flow was negative, and eventually it became positive a few years later, and just kept going up until we lost our depreciation, and then dipped down, and then it continued, and eventually, off the chart, it would be paid off and cash flow would increase. That's the 20% down rental we did. Now, here's the curve for when we buy it as a nomad. So you'll notice, first off, it happens really early, three, three years in or so instead of the 10 years in. Why doesn't it have that big spike? Because we already lived in it. We basically are not getting a new mortgage at this point, so we don't have a month off, right? We had the month off and we bought it, and since we were living in there, we didn't get any cash flow from living in it, okay? We, that, that was, the bump was actually in our savings when we moved in originally, instead of on our cash flow. So now we have this negative cash flow, and negative cash flow lasts a while. In fact, it lasts almost to when we would have had negative cash flow with the 20% down. Why is it so much more negative? Yeah, we're financing our down payment. Instead of coming up with 20% down, we only came up with 3% down. So we had to feed this property longer, okay? But we acquired it earlier. Then eventually, what happened here? What? We paid it off. Because this is the house we got in month zero or month one. So now it's paid off in month 360, cash flow significantly improves. Now we got this extra cash flow we can invest. So it changes what the curve looks like. Here they are compared. The blue line's the 20% down property, the red line's the 3% down Nomad one. So cash flow is negative. Eventually they both went positive. You have this little spike there for the 20% down. This one gets paid off. This one doesn't because actually it's, we didn't take it for 10 years. So you actually have it earlier. It changes the curve completely. Really affects what the numbers look like. So, so buying the rental property earlier as a nomad, we show the difference in cash flow. What does that, how does that impact net worth? The net worth when we were doing the 20% down rental property was 5.38. What do you think net worth is gonna be on doing the nomad? Is it gonna go up? Is it gonna go down? It's gonna go up? How much? $10,000? $100,000? A million dollars? I'm sorry? Half a million. What do you think? Anyone else? Two million, Royce says. <laughs> All right, let's take a look. So net worth doing as Nomad is $5.98 million in year 40. So it's about $600,000 better. Okay? But who likes moving? Even if it means $600,000 and improved cash flow better, long after the pain of moving is forgotten. Right? 
it's only 600,000. I don't need to move. What if we forego nomading and just buy as many 20% down rentals as we can save for? Forget the stock market stuff. We'll keep it saving in the stock market, but as soon as we get a 20% down rental, let's buy another one. What do you think about that model? Okay, so instead of stopping at one 20% down rental, you're gonna go ahead and build a rental empire. As many 20% down rentals as we can acquire. We buy another 20% down rental every time we have the down payment, plus I set a minimum and said you have to have $5,000 in cash in the bank, and we're gonna adjust that for inflation so you have a little cash buffer. How many rentals do you think we acquire? If you do this model and you, every time you get enough for 20% down, how many do you think you get? Total. Four? Any other guesses? No idea. Each one you get a little bit more, you get a little bit more negative cash flow up front and then it becomes positive. How many do you think? Six. Royce says 47. All right, so here's the one we bought before. This is basically you, you own the property 0% down. You saved up for your 20%. You bought one property and you kept it for the whole duration. That was the one we covered already. This is the chart for the other one. So you save until you're at year 10. You have another property. Then you save until you're at year, whatever, month 200 or so. Then you buy another one. Then you save until you're at 260 or so. Buy another one. Then you save until you're at 310 or so. Buy another one. 340, buy another one, buy another one, buy another one, buy another one, buy another one. By the time you get to the end, you have 12 properties total. One of them you're living in. Okay? A lot more than you thought. Part of it is because you start compounding your cash flows. So this is the comparison between the one versus all the extra ones. All right, so here's the account balance. With the one where we bought one 20% down, we got to this point, we paid a down payment, and then it just continued to grow. We let our account balance grow for the duration. With this model, we bought one, paid the down payment, we let it grow till we had enough, bought another one, let it grow, paid it down, let it grow, let it grow, and so on and so forth. It becomes a jagged edge where your account balance does not grow. You're converting the money you would have invested in the stock market, all this stuff, into more houses. Does everyone see that? Okay. So 20% down rental empire builder. Was it better to take our money and buy 20% down payment rentals or buy just one rental and invest the rest of the stock market? What do you think? Buy one? You think the stock market was better? Rental properties are better. Remember our discussion of debt pay down. What's the return you're getting from debt pay down? Just one of the four areas of return. 5.5%. So you're, you're a lot of the way there just by getting debt pay down and that one's guaranteed plus appreciation. So how much better do you think it is? How much better cash flow? How much better net worth? And then what about management? Is it easier to manage, you know, a million dollars in the stock market or is it easier to manage 11 rental properties? Stock market. But we are assuming you're paying a property manager in our numbers. We're putting aside 10% for property management in there. So now you're really just managing your manager. Okay. So, total cash flow. This is the one rental property. You've seen that curve before. This one is the new curve every time you buy rental property. So same idea though, guys. You started off with none because you had a property you lived in. You get that little bump when you buy the first one. That's when you got a new loan. Then you had negative cash flow. Gets a little bit more positive. You buy your next one to get a little bump for that first month. It was negative, so it drops down your cash flow from where it was, but it's still a positive between the two of them. Grows, you get another mortgage, you get a little bump. 
drops down a little bit, but it keeps going up. Another bump, another bump, it keeps going. So eventually your cash flow is all the way up here at 7,000 and change per month in cash flow from your rental properties. Okay? This is what your cash flow when you had just the one look like. This is what your cash flow here looked like. So now you have a lot more cash flow coming in from your rental properties. What's the difference? It was under 2,000 here. It's 7,841.49 per month in year in month 480 on your cash flow numbers here. So it's pretty significant. What about net worth? It was 5.378. Now it's 7.46. So your your net worth increased significantly by what is that? Two million dollars by investing in properties instead of the stock market. Again, what's the what were our initial assumptions in this? What were the initial assumptions? We're saving $160 a month. What else? How much were we making? $5,000 a month. So making $5,000 a month, we can end up here. 40 years. What's the present value of that? Divide by three. It's approximate. Really approximate. It's really rough, but it's close. So 2.5 million. Okay. Here are the net worth comparisons for a bunch of different stuff. So this was the one where you were just a renter, you stuck money in your mattress. Very low. This is the one where you took your money and you actually stuck it in the stock market got 8%. No real estate though, you're a renter. This is the first one when you owned a property and you actually saved the savings you have from owning a property. That's your biggest bump right there. And this is your net worth when you actually buy one 20% down rental property. This is your net worth when you do Nomad once, one time. And then this is your net worth if you buy as many rental properties as you can with 20% down. You say, screw moving, I make $5,000 a month inflation adjusted, I'm saving $160 a month, um, as soon as I save for my down payment, I'm buying another 20% down rental. As soon as I get another one, I'm buying a 20% down rental. Keep doing it, that's what this is. And the next one would be one nomad and then... Maybe I am willing to nomad, says Dan. <laughs> Maybe I am, you know, I don't know. This looks good, but is Nomad any better? Is it worth doing? I don't know. That's kind of crazy. What if you're willing to do Nomad to acquire a total of 10 properties? Nine rentals and you live in one. Instead of saving up your 20% down payments. Maybe Nomad's interesting after all. How quickly do you acquire properties compared to the 20% down Empire Builder guy? You could do one a year if you could save up money that fast. But remember, we're, we're limiting this book I said you're doing one a year and I told you how much money you needed. The new book, I'm saying to you, hey, you only make $5,000 a month and you're saving $160 a month, how long will it take you to do the model, right? So it's a different thing. This one says you need $160,000 in down payments to do this model at one a year for 10 years. This one says how long do you need to be able to save up the down payments to do different variations of the models? It's another way of looking at it. So right now, how long do you think it's going to take? Is it going to be faster or slower? Faster, faster probably, right? Because you don't have to save up 20%. So here is the full nomad. You buy a property. That's the one you live in. Then you're going to go here in about, I don't know, three years into it, you're able to buy another one. It takes you a little time to save up for the next one. Then you buy another, you buy another, buy another, such that by the time you're at whatever month this is, 300 or so, you've got your 10th. Whoops. So this was us buying 20% down properties. You can see it took a lot longer to do it, but we ended up with more properties with this one. 
So with Nomad, I said, let's stop at 10. Nine rentals, one property we're living in, we're gonna stop there, and we're gonna stop there at this month. Otherwise, this is buying 20% rental properties for as, as, as often as we can. If we could have bought more, we would have bought more. That's the speed difference. The account balance, this was us doing 20% down rentals. You can kind of see it's save up, down payment. Save up, spend the down payment. Save up, spend the down payment. And it just keeps repeating until you get to the end. With the Nomad one, we, did, we saved up, we did a down payment, saved up, did a down payment, saved up, did a down payment, so on and so forth, till we got to here. Then what happened? Well, this isn't paid off. This is actually stopped buying. We're basically not buying any more properties, so our account balance just grows because we're not using any more down payments. We're just letting it accumulate and sit in the stock market. So sort of like this one before, the 20% down, we never really invested long-term in the stock market. We always had some money to save up for our down payment in it, but once we actually got enough, we took it out. We took it off the table and we put it into real estate. This other one, we're combining the two. We're saying save for your down payments, but once you get to 10, you don't need to save for down payments anymore. We could take all that money and put it in the stock market and let it grow. Make sense? Okay. So maybe I am willing to do nomad cash flow. So the monthly net cash flow for the Empire Builder, the guy buying as many 20% down rental properties as he could, with 11 rentals, 12 properties, 11 more rentals, was $7,841 per month in month 480. That's what it was. How much do you think cash flow from nine rentals acquired via Nomad will be in month 480? There are two fewer rentals, two less properties, significantly lower down payments than 20%. We didn't put 20% down on each one, so you'd expect your cash flow to be worse on a per property basis at least, but acquired sooner. So think about this, because you acquired them sooner, some of them actually get paid off, which really boosts cash flow. How much in cash flow? What do you think? It was 7,841 with 11. How much do you think it's going to be with nine? This is why it's so hard to think about this stuff, because there's so many things in play. And which ones take precedence? 10 grand. 10 grand. Any other guesses? 8 grand. 12. 20. Let's take a look. So this is the 20% down ones. This one is the nomad ones. Starts off negative, negative for a while, negative. Starts going positive, but then all of a sudden you have these big bumps. These are houses getting paid off. So you have three of them actually end up getting paid off, such that your cash flow at the end is over 15K. You compare the two, cash flow for the other one, for the 20% down, it like, they kind of like stagger sometimes. One of them is higher than the other, the other one's higher than the other one. They kind of go back and forth until finally, the Nomad one takes off right around month 300 or so and actually continues to get better because you're not acquiring any more new negative cash flow ones and these ones you are, okay? This is the difference. It was 7,000 and change to 17,000 and change cash flow. This includes property management, includes maintenance, includes management, I already said that, taxes, insurance, vacancy, all that stuff. This is true net cash flow after everything. Pretty significant difference if you're willing to move. So maybe I'm willing to move Nomad. How does this impact your net worth? The net worth for the Empire Builder with 11 rentals, 12 of them total, was 7.46 million in month 480. What is your net worth if you're willing to Nomad? You have two fewer rentals. Nine rentals, 10 houses total. 
you're getting a lot more appreciation because you own the house earlier. Absolutely. 12 million, 15 million. What else? Anything? 11.28 million in month 480 if you're willing to nomad. So it's an increase of whatever that is, 5 million, 4 million, something like that, 4 million. So here's the nomad one added. These are the ones we talked about before. The new red bar is basically your full nomad. Does that surprise anyone? Yeah. All right, so just for fun, what if you said to me, okay, James, I can get my spouse to go along with doing Nomad to get to 10 properties. After that, no more moving. We're done. But I do want to acquire more properties. So I will go ahead and buy additional 20% down properties as soon as my account balance saves up enough for those. So I do Nomad until I get to 10. Then after that, I'm off to the races buying as many as I can. So how many can you buy? What do you think? Over a 40-year period. Before, you, I think you got, what, 12 with the 20% down by itself? How many can you do this way? And you are starting with 10 with the Nomad one. You think at least 20? Yeah. Okay. Any other guesses? You only have a few years left, right? By the time you get to your 10, you're at your, three, your 300, month 300, which is what? Your cash flow is significantly better, though, but it's also a lot more expensive properties to save up 20% down for. Right? They're million-dollar houses. 15-ish? 20 houses in month 480. How much true cash flow do you get by buying, doing Nomad for the first 10 and then doing 20% down thereafter? How much cash flow do you have in month 480? 25,000 is the guess. Anything else? What other guess you got? 100,000, Royce? What? Any other guesses? 19,886 per month in month 480. I'll show you a chart of that one here in a second. How much net worth? What was your net worth before? 11 something? What do you think it increases by doing this? Or does it increase? I guess it goes down. I don't know. Let's see. 12.56. Okay. So here's your cash flow. Your cash flow before was this. Now it's almost 1986. So a little bit of improvement. And here's your net worth. Net worth was this. Now it's whatever that is. So conclusion. So what are your big takeaways from this? By the way, this other examples in the book. I just picked some highlights. There's like 10 different scenarios we've run through, and I show you the charts and explain it all in print. So you guys can read through that or, or share it, whatever you want to do. Nomad is the way to go. Nomad is the way to go. That's one of your conclusions, okay? What other conclusions? You can mix and match depending on your lifestyle and you know, how far you want to go. Yeah, you totally can mix and match depending on your lifestyle and what you want to do. If you can get your spouse to do three moves, great. If you don't do any moves, we can still make this whole thing work without moving into any properties, right? I mean, but move into the one you live in without moving into any of the rentals. I could show you how to get there doing it. And I think we documented that $5,000 a month is not unreasonable between two people who are willing to hustle, right? And that 3% a year in uh, wage inflation is not unreasonable either, according to the government, at least. Yeah. Do you take into consideration the cost of 
We do not take into account the cost of moving. We assume you can trick your friends 10 times into moving for you. <laughs> After that, your friends do not exist anymore. But it's, it's a good way to wean yourself with some friends, too. Uh, no, we do not take into account the cost of moving, but we could, right? We could increase our closing costs on each property to do like a, a rent ready or an additional cost to close that accounts for some moving stuff. But yeah, that would probably be a good thing to model in there. But if you're, I mean, if you're living tight, you're probably hustling and doing it yourself and not paying somebody to do that. I, I mean, I've had a lender at one point, they give you a $100 U-Haul certificate and I moved, I don't know, I think I used that three times and over that period, it was like 30 bucks in my time, right? And my brother and Jamie. Beer so, and some pizza and yeah. stuff like that. But a couple hundred bucks, maybe. It definitely, if you're doing it on the cheap, you could do it really tight, but it's definitely putting wear on your body. I think the difference is when you're... Right, when so you I don't have a lot of stuff. I used to be able to stuff. fit all my stuff into two so small U-Hauls. <laughs> yeah, you live in a house for 20 years and then you try to move, that is non-trivial. Yeah. Non-trivial at all. But that gives you an opportunity to raise money. You have a yard sale, you raise your money for doing your next down payment, and you're able to do that. What are your other big takeaways? What did you guys think about the difference between 20% down and doing the Nomad stuff? Was that pretty interesting? Did you think that it was going to be a bigger difference? One of the big takeaways I had was the difference when you buy your first property and how big of a difference that was. I thought it was going to be you know, about a million dollars because you had a million dollars worth of house net worth, but it turned out the savings from actually owning a house are pretty significant. And I, I actually thought some people were gonna bring up this caveat, which is not reflected, and that is that you have house maintenance on a property. And so one could argue that, you know, renting your kind of maintenance is included in your rent, but house maintenance is not. And so that could actually have an impact on stuff. That's not modeled appropriately. But it's still, it's huge difference. I mean, you're talking, what was it, like 4.8 million or something like that when you go to buy your first house compared to what was it, 1 million or something like that before? Or, or ha like 800,000, 900,000? I thought that was huge. But when you think about it, all the money that you're not having going up from this big part of your mortgage payment, if you really do save that, it gets big. It gets really, really big. Instead of saving $160 a month, you could be saving three or four times that. You know, because this starts off big to begin with, and if it's not growing at 3% per year, then it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty big savings. Anything else? Any other takeaways? Yeah. I see a challenge would be like the first property. Like if you bought the first property and then you have to buy another one, how do you qualify? Oh, you get a you get a lease for the one you're moving out of, and the the, the landlord, the, uh, the mortgage broker can count the income from the lease to qualify. Okay. Yep. Without actually having a signed paper. No, you have a signed lease. You get a lease that's signed ahead of time. You don't have your houses vacant. Yeah, you need to hustle and get a tenant in there before you move out. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, if you do have a little bit of extra income and you can kind of do it without having to have the lease, you gain some extra flexibility, but you can do it like really, really tight. It's just, it's more work. It's more hustle. Yeah. Totally. Is there a question? No question? So here's some of mine. Master your finances, learn to save money. You can get there with just the house you live in, grit and discipline of saving the 160 plus the savings for being a homeowner. That was my big takeaway, is that I was really surprised by that. 
And then adding rental properties helps. You get equity, you get cash flow, and you get leverage. And if you remember, when we didn't have any rentals, there was no supplemental cash flow coming in from the rental properties. We had to then retire on that big balance in the stock market. So we had to start withdrawing and spending. When you have rental properties, you have income coming in from those properties in addition to the stockpile of equity and the money you had in the bank account in the stock market. Okay. All right. That's it. That's all I got for you. Stick around for the class after the class. Thank you all for coming. Hopefully the recording worked and I will see you all next week.